This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 16th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Do Americans abuse consumer credit? Have credit balances increased dramatically in recent years? To both of these questions, Todd Zawicki says, not really. He's co-author of the new book, Consumer Credit and the American Economy, which is a deep dive into how Americans have used credit for at least the last several decades. We spoke last week. I've heard it said that in the uh, 30s and 40s, it was highly unlikely for a house to have a mortgage on it. And today, it's highly unlikely for a house not to have a mortgage on it. Uh, So what has been the uh, sort of the brief history of the use of consumer credit? Because I think there are a lot of uh, common ideas about how much people are using credit versus uh, eras past. As long as we've had consumer credit, we've had people are concerned about how other people use consumer credit, and typically they believe that they use consumer credit too much. Um, but the reason why people use consumer credit, and housing finance is a good example, is people use credit for the same reason that businesses use credit, which is they use it to smooth income and expenses and also to buy capital goods. So, for example, a business um, rather than hiring 10 guys with a shovel to dig a hole, they might get a backhoe and they might finance it using uh, credit. Uh, or if they uh, need a new delivery van, they might finance it using credit and basically use the increased productivity to pay for it. Well, consumers do the same thing, which is that when consumers buy a house or a car or a student loan or something as simple as a washing machine, it's like a capital investment. It gives them a stream of benefits over time. And so while back in the old days, it may have been the case that a lot of uh, houses didn't have mortgages, that's really not an idea that makes that much sense economically to have somebody pay rent for 20 years before they can finally afford to, to a house. I'll give you an example, perhaps, that uh, is even more uh, interesting, which is cars. So in the 20s, as we know, General Motors overtook Ford very quickly as the largest car maker. Why was that? Well, partly it was you know General Motors made more stylish cars, but partly it was In the 20s, General Motors rolled out the GMAC plan, where you could buy a car and pay for it on credit. Ford responded by allowing you to buy a car on layaway, (laughs) which is you could save up for 10 years and send Ford a check every month, and then after 10 years, they give you a car. Meanwhile, ride the bus, right? Well, if you understand how absurd it is to buy a car on layaway, for instance, you begin to understand why it doesn't make sense to buy a house or uh, uh, a lot of other things that consumers do uh, on layaway and why it makes sense to use credit to buy those kind of capital goods. All right. So uh, the stream of payments that accrue to people who buy things on credit, don't those stream of payments, the stream of benefits also accrue to people who don't do those things? Yes, but um, the the idea that a lot of people have about consumer credit is it's just shifting consumption from one time to another, right? Which is, I'm basically eating my seed corn by uh, by, by consuming today. But that's not right. Uh, the way to think about it is that in some sense, it increases my productivity, right? Overall, my life is better if I own a washing machine rather than schlepping the laundry mat every Saturday night with a pocket full of quarters and have to sit there and feed quarters in the machine and, you know, waste my time and that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and that's really the idea is it's, it's not just shifting benefits over time. It's actually 
like a, an investment that makes my life better because it does turn out to be less expensive most of the time to have a washing machine rather than going to the laundromat, to have a refrigerator rather than going to the grocery store every day and that sort of thing. And so, uh, so buying those products um, allow us certain uh, um, productive investments, essentially. You taught your book goes into some level of detail about how much of a burden, how much of a debt burden households have carried uh, over long periods of time. We understand today that with a common conception is that people are drowning in credit card debt, that it's, and it is, it is a large sum of money when you look at it, but how has that changed over time? Well, that's the surprising thing to, to, I think, most people who don't know the history of consumer credit, which is the real growth in consumer credit in America happens in the post-war era, right after World War II. Um, and, uh, and I've joked that uh, um, consumer credit is the Conestoga wagon of the migration to Levittown, uh, which is following World War II, when people came home, they, uh, uh, this is where we saw the great migration to the suburbs. They moved from small apartments and cities with hand-me-down furniture out to the three-bedroom ranch in the suburbs with a car in the driveway, modern appliances like washing machines and refrigerators, uh, bedroom sets and everything else. That was all financed on credit, and most people don't realize that. So that by about 1960, 1965, consumers have measured by all kinds of different measurements uh, pretty much the same debt burdens that they have today. Um, but it was a different sort of debt. So if you think about it in the 70s, for instance, if you needed $500 to repair your car, you might go to a personal finance company and borrow $500 and repay it on time. If you needed a, um, uh, if you bought a bedroom set, you might open up a line of credit at the, uh, at the um, furniture store and repay that uh, on time. If you bought a refrigerator, you might pay it on time. Nowadays, we just put that all on a credit card. So all credit cards really have done is change the composition of consumer credit, but it hasn't fundamentally changed it. It's just a substitution of a new, modern, better form of credit for these old installment loans that people used to have. So transferring store credit to an account with uh, Visa or MasterCard or some other bank. Exactly right. And you just think about that. What I remember when I was a kid is people buying encyclopedias on credit. Uh, every month you would get a new letter <laughs> in the encyclopedia. You would finance encyclopedias. People financed, even in the 20s, they were financing radios and pianos. And consumer credit goes way, way back uh, uh, in, in America. Um, and we've gotten modernized, and credit cards are an improvement on that. But it's pretty much the same dynamic. We also hear that uh, abuse of credit, that people have gotten themselves into serious trouble, and of course people do, but uh, what is the what, what does the evidence show over time with respect to people's, uh, I guess, inability to handle the availability of credit? Great question, and this is something people think has gotten worse because there are, are more credit options now because of innovation and that sort of thing. And it's always been the case that people have gotten in over their heads on on credit, right? Uh, on, on debt, um, you know, in the in the in the seventies, for instance, the New York Times was uh, writing that America uh, that Americans were drowning in debt. That was the eighteen seventies, by the way. <laughs> and so, as long as we've had credit, we've had people who misuse it. We've seen in recent years, during the 
financial crisis, people are misusing things like home, you know, good old home mortgages uh, people were misusing. But there's no evidence that over time that has changed. Uh, uh, there's always going to be some people who misuse it, but it's really pretty clearly a minority. A majority of people overwhelmingly use credit to make their lives better. Uh, and that's always been the case in the United States, and that remains the case today. The one possible exception that, uh, that one needs to think about is student loans, though. Student loans, we've never seen anything like we've seen over the past uh, 10 or 20 years of the way Americans have strapped on student loans. Uh, that, if you've if you got a concern, look at student loans. Don't be looking at uh, um, credit cards and, and auto loans. We've seen a huge growth in student loans, and that's you know, a whole nother sort of uh, uh, story, but it's having all kinds of effects. Uh, student loans, of course, have a special designation uh, with respect to uh, categories of debt because they are not often cases uh, dischargeable in bankruptcy. Uh, but I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, how does bankruptcy uh, play into the availability uh, of credit that people have? I know that it's become harder to file. Uh, in general, and does that uh, make firms more likely to to uh, make offers to people that they otherwise would uh, be concerned about offering credit to? Yeah, it's uh, th this is something we talk about a lot in the book because it's an interesting application of the thesis. And again, our idea is is that people are savvier, that people understand how to use credit more than we often give them credit for, for want of a better phrase. And bankruptcy is a good example, which is I was actually very involved in that debate over tightening the bankruptcy laws in uh, around 2005. And my main interlocutor was uh, uh, then professor, now Senator Elizabeth Warren. And it's really a good test of the ideas in the book, which is her view of the world is that people file bankruptcy always involuntarily. That, uh, that it's always because of divorce or over indebtedness or something like that, and that people don't respond to incentives. My view was that people do respond to incentives, that, uh, that you would expect an impact on how consumers use credit and their willingness to file bankruptcy depending on the incentives created by the bankruptcy code. And one of the interesting things that we detail in the book is in 2005, Congress placed new limitations on the ability of consumers to file bankruptcy. The response, her prediction was, bankruptcy rates wouldn't change because it would just make life more miserable for people. In fact, what happened? As soon as we tightened the bankruptcy laws, bankruptcy rates fell. Bankruptcy rates rise, rose again during the uh, Great Recession and have started to fall again as uh, the economy has improved, which I think is pretty compelling evidence uh, that demonstrates that uh, the consumers do take into account the incentives of the bankruptcy code in deciding when to borrow and lenders take into account in deciding when to lend. So, I mean, it it's, seems almost like a chicken and egg problem. If you say that uh, bankruptcy rates fall after tightening uh, the ability for people to file bankruptcy, then it might logically just follow that fewer people are going to file bankruptcy. Well, what we saw was um, uh, during the 1990s and the 2000s, we saw a dramatic increase in bankruptcy filings during a period of unprecedented prosperity. So in the 90s alone, which was a period of rapid economic growth, well, rapid uh, wealth growth, low unemployment, low interest rates, the bankruptcy rate doubled. 
Uh, and it wasn't until we adjusted the incentives of the bankruptcy code that that got under control. So that was the anomaly that created the desire for bankruptcy reform was bankruptcy rates seemed to be rising regardless of what was going on in the larger economy. And now what we've seen is bankruptcy rates seem to follow the business cycle in the way that most people think that bankruptcies uh, should. Um, and uh, and that's a big change from uh, from where the system was before these safeguards were put in place. So uh, bankruptcy rates were going up during a good economic time, the 90s. But is that to be unexpected necessarily with effectively the price of uh, taking risk going down in the form of interest rates? Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, and, and it really... What it does is it puts in relief that the bigger question is sort of how many bankruptcies do we want to have? Um, the argument we make in the book that I've made in my own work is that um, that what drove increases in bankruptcy filings during that period were a lot of factors kind of unrelated to bankruptcy, which was, for instance, a decline in the social norms involving bankruptcy. People became sort of – it was less stigmatized in some sense. The development that you described earlier, where no longer do you get credit from your local furniture store, you get your credit from Citibank out there in South Dakota. I think people are more willing to file bankruptcy in stiff Citibank than they are their local furniture store or their local tailor or something like that. All those factors change the willingness of people to borrow money and file bankruptcy. And the argument that that, that, that I made and that uh, I think is consistent with the evidence is if we think that bankruptcies were too high, then changing the incentives of the bankruptcy code can be a substitute for those declining norms, for those changes in economic relations uh, uh, and that sort of thing. A different question is how many bankruptcies do we want to have? What kind of bankruptcies do we want to have? The general consensus was that bankruptcies should track the business cycle uh, in some sense. That's what seems to have happened as a result of the reform. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I guess people can disagree on. But it, but it has, it does seem to have happened. Todd Zewicki is co-author of Consumer Credit in the American Economy. You can read more on credit, banking, and regulation at our website, cato.org.